When you get up in the morning, at some point, you're going to go look in the mirror. Now, I try not to do that first thing. I'd rather have a cup of coffee first and spend a little time in the Word and prayer, and then go look in the mirror. And I think, that boy needs some help. What do you see when you look in the mirror? How do you think of yourself? I think for most of us, that idea or that feeling of who we are is based on a lot of things, how we look, how we feel that day, what's processing in our mind. We measure ourselves by how much money we have, how many friends we have, how much success we've had in life. Maybe it's your degrees or credentials or your position at the office or in the community. These are what we would call measurements of ourselves, and we tend to measure other people in the very same way. And I think what that can do is create a lot of conflict, conflict within us and also conflict with other people. In the passage that we're going to look at this morning, the Apostle Paul is addressing his beloved friends in the city of Corinth, and they're having a lot of conflict, conflict with each other, which shouldn't be. The church ought to be a place, a safe haven, a place where people get along and they do really well together. But they were saying things like, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. And there was party spirit and division and conflict. Well, this is pretty common in our society and many of our churches and ministries and many of our homes. And I think one of the big reasons for that is we do not have a proper view of ourselves, and we do not have a proper view of those around us. And so if that is misinformed, I'm going to function out of how I see myself. I'm going to treat people how I see them. And this is why the Apostle Paul is trying to bring them back to harmony and unity and peace and joy and purpose. We need to recognize that God has created every single one of us with a purpose. He has designed us, he has fashioned us, and he has a will for us. And the only way that we'll find really complete fulfillment is when that comes to be a fact in our lives. So let's look at this text. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and the first five verses. A person should think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts, and then praise will come to each one from God. So there you have it. How should you view yourself? When you look in the mirror, when I look in the mirror, how should I view myself? I should view myself in this way, as a servant of Christ. Now that's a tough thing for me to process, because I, I begin to recoil at the very sound of it. So 
what is a servant? What does a servant look like? What does a servant do? How is a servant's work measured? And what benefit would there ever be by living such a life? So this morning, what we'd like to do is to explore what Paul is meaning by this statement. He is trying to calm all of the division, the conflict, the turmoil, the stress, the party spirit within this family of believers by saying you need to see yourself not of this group or that group, but you need to see yourself as a servant of Christ. So four conversations I'd like to have. First of all, our rights. What are our rights as servants? Secondly, what are our responsibilities? In other words, what do we do? Third, our requirements, the measurables of those responsibilities. And then finally, our rewards. What What's the payoff? What's the benefit? And I, I hope that each Sunday I can show you the benefit to your life of following God's words because there is no one in all of the universe that is more for you and behind you and there to help you than God himself. So let's look at a servant. What are a servant's rights? When I think of the word servant, I can think of uh, many things, and I usually think in the context of my own life and the, my own times, the place I live, and the nation I'm in. And I think with our culture and our background in our nation, we tie it to many things. There are three words that the Apostle Paul will use throughout his writings that I think are important to see, that he identifies himself. He calls himself a slave. He calls himself a servant. And he calls himself a steward. Now, the last two are in this text. The first one, slave, is not. And I just want to address that for a moment because I think it's important in the context of all that we're saying. Why would any, anyone identify themselves as a slave? First of all, slavery in Roman times was incredibly common. doesn't make it good or right, but it was incredibly common. About, about one out of three people who lived in Rome was a slave. And in the Roman Empire, in its entirety, about one in five people were slaves. And slavery then was not like what we've known in America, which has been a horrible thing, and we're still trying to get over that. But it was usually as a result of conquest, or one nation taking over another nation, or a person who had become indebted. And so when Paul is saying this, I am a slave of Jesus Christ, or I am a slave of God, what he's saying is God or Christ has conquered my heart, or he's saying I am indebted, I have a debt to him. In other words, Jesus paid all my sins, I owe him everything, and so my life is a life of following him in submission. And so he'll use that term, and I think it's a powerful term, the word doulos in the Greek New Testament. We'll look at the other two words in just a moment here. But we, we, we come through this text, and he's going to talk about being a servant. And this is a, this is a combination of two words, under rower. You say, well, what is that? Because we don't, we don't use that terminology today. But in that time, they had ships with sails that would travel around the world. But in the Mediterranean and certain places where there wasn't great distances to cover, they would have a galley below and have servants or under rowers manning the oars. 
Uh, you've probably seen this in movies like Ben-Hur and others. And, and once in a while, they would have, have slaves there in extreme pressures of war. But typically, these were hired people. These, these were people that were serving in that way the ship. So they were below deck. They were um, rowing together, sometimes several of them on one oar. <clears throat> and this was used typically in battle. So the ships had a, a more shallow hull. They could travel quickly. Uh, when they couldn't catch wind to sail, they would get those oars row, uh, rowing <clears throat> and ram other ships and engage in warfare. So the under rower is really a very lowly position and is not the kind of life where I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do my thing. I'm, I don't want to do that. I want to do this because if you're rowing, you've got to be in sync with every other rower. And the one that's shouting out the command of when to row, you've got to, to be doing that completely. And this is how the Apostle Paul describes himself as a servant. The servant is responding to the voice of the one commanding to row. He is in a lower place. He's not the captain on the deck. He's not pressing to be famous or to be heard. He is doing his job. And this is how he identifies himself. A servant is usually one who's a free person who has surrendered their rights to fulfill a task. And so a person could be serving in a home, could be serving uh, in a military, or in a lot of different vocations. But they usually surrender their rights, in other words, their agenda, their plans, their all of these things, even their place of living, and willingly put themselves under someone else. And this is how the Apostle Paul is saying we need to see ourselves as as yielding up and surrendering our rights. And I think that's hard for every one of us, especially this day and time. We live in a nation, and I, you know, I'm all for constitutional rights, and, and I, I believe in those, and I often say, you know, we have certain constitutional rights. We have the freedom of speech. We have the Second Amendment. And so we, we kind of live in an environment where we can tend to be a bit uh, feeling entitled, and I have these rights, and I demand my rights. And when a person is demanding their way, demanding their rights, typically in relationships, it's going to cause a lot of conflict. And so Paul is saying, you need to get in your mind this view of yourself as a servant. So how do we judge all this? He, he says in verses 3 and 4, it's of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or any human court. The important thing is, is God judges us. So if I'm measured by you or I'm measured by social media on how many likes, which I think that that has come to really shape how people feel about themselves. You, you look statistically of the impact of social media and just that like button, what it has done to the, the mindset of people in our, in our world, it's a tragedy. And I'm not saying it's in and of itself an evil thing. But what it does is I begin to see myself as how other people see me or like me. And Paul is trying to get us away from that. And so when, when he says this, follow me, Jesus says, follow me. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. What are we following Jesus 
with, our commitment. It, it, it's with a life that is the same as his. And Jesus described himself as a servant. I want you to see this because these are the, the words that begin in the New Testament. When Jesus says to you, he says to me, follow me. What does that look like? Well, Jesus is a servant. He describes himself as a servant. He says, I serve my father. I, I delight to serve my father. My will is to, to do uh, his will. And so Jesus describes himself as a servant. He demonstrates that to his disciples. If you remember the upper room experience when he's washing the feet of his disciples and he says, do you understand what I've done to you? And he's saying, I, I've called you to be servants. And a servant is, is not living life on his own terms. And, and so Jesus did the will of his father. He served his father and he served people. Everywhere he went, you look at the life of Jesus. How many times do you see him self-promoting or have his own agenda or I want to do this for me and, and don't bother me? He's always concerned about others. And so if Jesus walks into the room, he's not looking at his watch thinking about his time or his agenda. He's looking at people. What does that person need? What does that person need? How can I serve them? What can I do for you? That is not an easy way to live because there has to be a denial of ourselves. But this is, this is a great truth because when you think of what, what motivated Jesus to serve his father and what motivated Jesus to serve the disciples, some of who would run and some betray him, what motivated him? It was love. Love motivated Jesus to serve his heavenly father, and love motivated him to serve others. And that same love, Paul is expressing to these believers, love is expressed by serving, not demanding your rights. Here's what Paul said in Galatians 2.20. He said, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So he, he describes himself as being crucified with Christ. Well, what does he mean by that? It's an interesting statement, but it's, it's I am dead. I am dead to selfish ambition. I am dead to my own agenda. I am dead to my rights. And I am alive to God's purposes and to serving him. And that is the best life a person could ever live. Now, it, it's a paradox. It's a contra, it's seemingly contradictory statement because you're saying, how can a person that is dead to all their rights and, and living for themselves and watching out for themselves ever find a better life? But that's, but that's exactly what happens is promised and, and is proven to be true. So, that's a look at our rights, but let's move on to our responsibilities. What is the responsibility of a servant? A, a servant is, another word you may have in your translation, a manager. Now, immediately, I think, when I think of manager, I think of commentators talking about a quarterback in the NFL saying he's a game manager. Now, that's not a good thing. That's a knock um, because they don't, People don't want to watch a game manager, but I can tell you this, game managers can win games. 
Well, people like to watch as someone spectacular, someone sensational, someone who can just wow the crowd. But a game manager is not something sensational. A manager is, again, two words put together that mean house law, someone who is overseeing the house. So a, a servant is also a manager or he is a steward. I think one of the best examples we have of this is Joseph in, when he was in Egypt in the Old Testament, last part of Genesis. And Joseph was in charge, he, charge of all of the land of Egypt under Pharaoh. Pharaoh put him in charge as a steward. And so Joseph didn't own anything, but he was given a responsibility to care for something very important. So you function at a very high level. And so many times wealthy Romans and senators, people that, that had great prestige would have servants or stewards that they would give incredible responsibility with their money, with their possessions, with their family, with their business, and it could be a very honored position. But you see this, what happens, the mindset of a steward is he still wakes up and his whole agenda is to fulfill the will of, of his owner or, or the one who owns all the estate. And, and this steward is free. He's not the same as a slave. He is free to make this choice. He, he freely submits himself to be the steward. And the mindset is that the only burden I have is the burden of the one I serve. And the only task that I have is following his orders of what he wants done. And this is really keeping in step. It's like when we say keep in step with God's spirit, keep in step with the word, keep in step with Jesus, keep in step with God. Every day when we get up, that's the one thing we need to do. So Matthew chapter 11 will be our verse of the week, verses 28 to 30. Jesus said this, he says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. To me, this is such a magnificent passage of scripture. And I think we memorized it earlier. I'm gonna come back to it again tomorrow with our verse of the week because what when Jesus sees us weary and worn out and tired and harassed, he says, come to me, come to me, come to me. That's the, that's the sweetest thing we could ever hear. Come to me. And he says, be yoked with me, with me. So a yoke would usually be over two oxen, and they would be linked together for purpose. And so what Jesus is giving us a, a visual, an image of us being yoked with him. And so really the only thing I need to do is to be with him. And he says, my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Why is that? Because we're going with him and he's carrying the load. And that's what a servant does. A servant doesn't go off and say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And this is what a steward does. So the steward is given responsibility to manage. And the question is to manage what? In this case, it's not a physical house, but he says, to manage the mysteries of God. It's required in stewards or managers that they be found faithful in what? Their 
managing the mysteries of God. What's the mystery of God? We say, well, that's a mystery. The mysteries of God are the mysteries of the good news of the gospel, of the coming of Jesus. What was hidden in part in the Old Testament became unveiled, and we have the responsibility to live that and to tell that in our day, because that is more important than any building we build or any account that we fund. Anything that we do is advancing that good news of eternal life, because this world is perishing. So let's move from our rights, our responsibilities, to requirements. And this is what I just mentioned in verse 2. It says, in this regard, it is required that managers or stewards be found faithful. So your responsibility is the mysteries of God. How do I know if I'm doing well? How do I measure that? We talked a little earlier about how we measure success or worth or value. How do we measure? And here's what God says, faithfulness, faithfulness. I can be honest with you, when I was younger and someone said to me, Matt, you know, if you're going to serve God and you're going to live the Christian life, you just need to be faithful. And I didn't like hearing that because I didn't want to be faithful. I, just, I wanted to do something great. <laughs> I want something more exciting. It's like we're going back to the quarterback. You want to be spectacular. But this is what God wants. He wants us to be faithful. That's what he requires. He's given us the responsibility as a servant, as a steward, a responsibility of the mysteries of the good news of eternal life of Jesus to declare that, to show that to this world. And what he wants from us is not to go out and do something spectacular, but be faithful. Well, what does it mean to be faithful? And I think consistently living the Christian life over time. Not perfectly. That's not what he says. It's not perfection. It's over time, consistently living the Christian life. Eugene Peterson, who is an author, is now, now with the Lord, wrote a book that's a, it's a classic book, really good. It's, it's called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. That's what it is, a long obedience in the same direction. You may get off track, you may stumble and fall, but over time, faithfulness is you just don't quit. You stick with it. You drop off, you fail, you struggle, you get back on, you're moving forward. But in the end, you, you have kept on following Jesus. Years ago when I had the opportunity to learn to fly, and uh, I hate even talking about flying in some ways because we have very experienced uh, jet flyers here at our church, but I've, I flew a little J3, Piper J3 Cub, 1946, very simple airplane. It did not have any modern avionics in it. And so in one of my lessons, my instructor told me, I'm going to teach you about dead reckoning. And I thought, dead reckoning when you're flying. That just doesn't sound good because I had images of <laughs> something catastrophic happening. But dead reckoning is picking a spot on the horizon keeping your eyes on that and heading toward it. And that way you don't continue to drift and get off track. And I think that someone was telling me one time, if you go from a flight to uh, Los Angeles to Washington, 
and you're off by just three degrees, you'll end up in New York. <laughs> and so what happens is with all of the variables and flying, you're going you're gonna to drift. And dead reckoning is keeping your eye on the spot where you're headed and continuing in that path. And I think that's what the Christian needs. The dead reckoning is on Jesus and is on his cross and is following him. And no matter what happens in my life, I get my eyes back up and I continue on. There are none of us that will run this race perfectly. We all stumble and fall and fail in so many ways. We all get discouraged. We question God. None of us are perfect in this. But over time, faithfulness is getting up and continuing and following him. So what feeds that process? And I think we come back to what we've talked about, God's word and prayer. God's word and prayer. Being in the word is my dead reckoning. Prayer is asking God for help in doing that. The Christian family also comes along and encourages, and the Holy Spirit is there to direct you. We have so many resources to be able to stay on track in this way, and it happens over time. So our last conversation is our rewards. What makes this so worthwhile? And I know that would probably sounds selfish to say what's in it for me, but I think most of us are motivated by looking at the end of this. What, what's the end result? So you say, be a servant, identify yourself as a servant, uh, live like a servant. What does that end up as? And this, this part really tells us. In, in verse 5, it says, so don't judge anything prematurely, because I think if we judge things prematurely, we're going we're gonna to say, well, this happened or this didn't happen, and no, it's the long look. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will bring both to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts, and then praise will come to each one from God. So what he's saying is that, and warning them against, is if you take the short look like just today or tomorrow or the immediate future, you're probably going to bail out of being a servant or following Christ because he's not promi promising immediate things that are going to make you feel good about it. But he's saying the long look of your life, following faithfully to him and for him. Many of the things that we achieve in this life um, are very temporal. I'd like to ask you, in your basement or in your closet, how, how many trophies or medals or certificates do you have? <laughs> and I, I thought, well, we ought to get everybody to get out their boxes and have a big party and everybody bring all their medals and trophies. And you know what? It would be so meaningless <laughs> because you think that was years ago and it was like so insignificant. And when you look over your life, that really didn't matter much. But the, most of the accomplishments that we do here on earth are so temporal. They fade. They rust and they spoil. But what he's going to talk about when he talks about reward, the very last part of verse 5, I love this. He says that, and then praise will come to each one from God. In other words, praise will come to us from God. When God shows his approval and we see the smile of God, there is nothing better than that because it is eternal. It never ends. It is, it is the validation, the commendation, the celebration from God to you that lasts forever. It never fades away. 
I love that. And we see a little bit from, Paul talks about this in several places, the kind of rewards that we will experience. And I, don't, I think this just is the surface of it. But he talks in terms of crowns, and it's not like a king's crown, but, but an athlete's crown, like when they'd, when they'd run in the games, and, and the Isthmus games were right there in Corinth. This was a very popular place for athletics. And so a crown would be like a wreath, and they would uh, be at the Bema seat, and they would be, they'd celebrate the victory. And so there, there are five crowns that, we, that Paul t- talks about, that we read about. One of those, the first one is the crown of victory, and it is having run the race and kept your eyes on eternal things. And he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 25 to 27, you'll be given a crown of victory, the victor's crown for being steadfast and disciplined to the end. Then there's the crown of rejoicing, celebrating, 1 Thessalonians 2, 19, and this crown is given to those who have pointed people to Jesus, brought people to Jesus, helped people to Jesus. And isn't that our, our role as servants of the myst- and stewards of the mysteries of God? We are helping people understand how these mysteries are unfolded, the death of Christ, what it does to atone for our sins, the, the life of Christ and his resurrection, offering to us eternal life. And when people are pointed to Christ and come to Christ, they, they did so because someone had an influence usually, and they received the crown of rejoicing, the crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy 4 and verse 8. And I think this is what Paul talks about. I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith, kept the faith and there is set up for me a crown in heaven of righteousness. <clears throat> and this is our hope that we have and we long for. And I think this, that it's real easy to get discouraged when your eyes are always down here looking at this life. You look at the coronavirus, you look at the politics, you look at the economy, you look at a lot of things, and, and you can get discouraged. But look up and, and long for heaven. It's not going to be a, a worse place. You know, when we think back to that term managers, um, that's what God had Adam do, the Garden of Eden. He was managing that garden. And he talks about heaven, how we'll be managing, to me, 10 times greater than Eden in heaven. <clears throat> and we're managers here on earth. So then the crown of life. James 1.12 in Revelation 2.10, he talks about for those who have suffered through and waited through difficult times for something better. They look forward to the crown of life. And then the crown of glory, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 4, for faithful shepherds, those that have pastored, shepherd, ministered, will receive a crown of glory. <clears throat> so when you look in the mirror and you get a visual, how do you see yourself? How do you want to see yourself? My prayer is this, that we can see ourselves the way God wants us to see ourselves as servants. When Jesus said, follow me, follow me, it was to follow the life of a servant. And follow me means a life as a servant is the better life. Let's bow together as we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your command that just kind of gets us back on track to what we need to be 
the example of Christ, the example of so many who have served. And I pray that we would be like Jesus, serving our Heavenly Father and serving one another. May our lives be marked by and defined by servant. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.